good. All right. So uh, the last several weeks we've been um, we've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five, six, and seven. So so that's where Jesus ultimately juxtaposes religion versus the gospel. So he does that throughout the whole sermon. So I don't have a fancy intro. So like uh, we'll just jump right into it and pray together. So. Jesus, thanks so much uh, for you and that uh, Mike was able to share how he came to faith in you and just like how you used um, just a transformative community that really follows you. Um, yeah, so we just uh, just really ask you that like um, you'll open ears um, for your sake um, just in us and I pray that like um, you'll just speak through me as well, God. So we're really thankful for you most of all. Amen. All right, so... Most so Jesus is giving a big sermon here. So like we've so we're through chapter five, we're through, through chapter six, and we're into chapter seven. So most sermons have an intro, except mine. Um, it has a body and it has a conclusion slash application. So Andy did a great job preaching last week, and with that, the main body of Jesus' sermon on the mount is now over. So starting with verse thirteen in chapter 7. So Jesus is going to now start the application slash conclusion of his sermon. So the people of the crowd have been hearing one of the greatest sermons ever preached, certainly had that they've ever heard. So Jesus is teaching them unlike anyone they've ever heard. There's countless people listening to him. Jesus ultimately, he doesn't have a microphone system that someone needs to turn on and everything. He can amplify his voice and throw his voice just like to a point where like people can hear him. Lots and lots of people are listening to him. The crowd is probably sitting silent and attentive. There aren't any side conversations going on. The atmosphere is probably tense with, with anticipation. Yeah, so they just heard an intense life-changing message from Jesus. Like the body of his, his sermon is done. So the question now is, What's he going to tell them now to do at the end of his sermon? So we find out in verse 13. Verse 13, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. So Jesus is saying that there's two contrasting choices. So he's preached this whole sermon right here. It's application time. It's like now there's like two ultimate contrasting choices that like the, that the people in the crowd can make because of that. There's a small gate and there's a wide gate. There's a narrow road and a broad road. One leads to destruction. The other one leads to life. One has many who enter it and the other one has few that find it. So of all the ways in this instance that Jesus could have described what it means to to surrender to him and follow him at the end of this sermon, he chooses to describe it as entering through a small gate and following a narrow road of all the ways he could have described it. So the question is, like, why does he choose to describe it like this and contrast it with a wide gate and a broad road? So a really good guess that I would make is that uh, being the king of your own life, uh, that's not terribly challenging for us. It's like we may not necessarily be good at it, but declaring ourselves as the king of our own lives, that's not terribly challenging. 
So pretend for a second that Jesus said, hey, the application for my sermon is be the king of your own life. Pretend that was the application. Um, I can't imagine the people in the crowd would be thinking like, oh gosh, that's, um, that's really hard. You know, I don't know about that. Like, I don't know. It's like, that sounds like a narrow road, man. It's like, no, it's like, like going through that gate is pretty wide and walking down that road is pretty easy, relatively speaking, because, and that's why it's not described as hard. You know, it's like, that's, uh, that's our natural instinctual modus operandi. It's like, it's just like, you know, that's our natural propensity. But putting Jesus on the throne of our own life, of our life, um, that's a small gate to enter, and that's a narrow road. But the question is, like, do we really trust that Jesus means what he says, like in that part where he says, like, that it leads to life? Like, do we really believe that? So if Jesus had subtitles, what I think what he was saying be saying is that, man, it, like, it leads to life. It's worth it. It really is. You know, it's like, do we really believe that? Yeah, so finding your identity in Christ and having him be the king of your own life. Um, personally, like, that is one big, that is a narrow road for sure for me. But, like, that is one big liberating breath of fresh air for my heart and mind. Like, it really is on a daily basis. Yeah, but it's a small gate and a narrow road because, like, it's not my natural inclination to surrender. It just isn't. But Jesus is saying that it's worth it. Jesus pleads with the crowd, and by way of scripture, he pleads with us to enter through the small gate and walk the narrow road. The question is, like, what's going to keep the crowd from the narrow road? So Jesus isn't naive. Like, there's a, you know, there's Pharisees in the crowd. There's religious leaders that he knows that are going to be disagreeing with him about like this narrow road, small road, like the application that he's making. He's not naive enough to think that everybody's going to agree with him with that. So what's going to keep the crowd from the narrow road? Verse 15, we find out there. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad, but a bad tree produces, excuse me, a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire because that's what they're good for. The only thing that they're good for at that point. Verse 20, thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, if the people in the crowd are paying attention, um, they know that these false prophets, that these false prophets that Jesus is talking about, like they're the ones that are going to be ultimately calling out I mean, because it's not a mistake that, like, he talks, starts talking about this right after he talks about the narrow road and, like, the broad road. So, like, the people in the crowd, they know that, like, these, um, these false prophets that he's talking about, they're the ones that are going to be, like, encouraging and calling out to the, pe- to the crowd. It's just like, hey, the broad road, like, that's the good road. Like, that's the narrow road. Like, you just need to be authentic and true to yourself and just, like, be, like, you just need to, the broad road's just better, you know? 
Like there's actually religious leaders out there that are like that. And Jesus knows that. So these false prophets that Jesus is talking about, these are religious false prophets because like we've seen throughout the sermon, this sermon series, Jesus is ultimately like pitting religion versus the gospel. These are religious false prophets. And Jesus says that these leaders, these religious leaders, these false prophets, they look like sheep, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. So Jesus goes on to further illustrate this by giving a horticulture analogy um, about trees and fruit and grapes and figs and thistles. Um, I don't like that kind of stuff personally. Like I'm the bad gardener like in my neighborhood and everything. We're the only ones, I think we're the only ones in the neighborhood that have dandelions and everything because I just don't care. Okay, but so here's the deal. Um, Grapes don't come from thorn bushes. And figs that are filled with those pomegranate seeds and everything, those don't come from thistles. And all this good tree and good fruit and bad tree and bad fruit, the assumption that Jesus is making in this analogy is that the trees that he's talking about, they look pretty darn similar on the outside. That's why you have to look at the fruit of what they're producing to look to figure out what they're like on the inside. So the assumption isn't like, oh, like there's this withering tree and there's like, oh, this full tree. Like, no, no, no. It's like they look pretty similar. Just look at the fruit. It's like that's what you like. That's what you can tell like what they're like on the inside. So people and trees can appear healthy and mature by just by mere appearances. But if you look at the fruit, but if you look at the fruit of people and trees you can get a good idea of what they're like on the inside. So when Jesus is talking about false prophets um, who are encouraging us to take the broad road, like he's saying that they're going to be hard to recognize. That's the assumption, the underlying assumption that he's making in all of it. Like it was hard for the crowd to recognize the fruit of the Pharisees. And um, the difficulty of recognizing false prophets today is the same difficulty that it was um, for the crowd that Jesus is talking to. Like, some things just don't change. And that's that they're just really hard to recognize. So, so the key question is, what's the fruit of their life and beliefs, and how does it line up with Scripture? So uh, there's a guy named Kevin DeYoung who is a pastor in Michigan. He writes for the Gospel Coalition. So, so he, this is what he said. So he says, uh, when the Bible talks about false teachers or false prophets, it isn't referring to everyone who dis... I'm using inflection here. This is my inflection, not his. Everyone who disagrees with me on any point of theology. No, a false teacher is a wolf. That's Jesus' words. No, a false teacher is a wolf. And someone who snatches up the sheep, John 10, draws disciples away from the gospel, Acts 20, opposes the truth, 2 Timothy 3, and leads people to make a shipwreck of their faith and embrace ungodliness, 1 Timothy 1. So the point that Kevin DeYoung, that writer, is making, and which I would agree with, is that there's a big difference between someone who disagrees with me about something and an actual false prophet. Because when it comes to a false prophet, the fruit of their life and ministry is that they're drawing people away from the gospel. More or less what they're saying is like, a false prophet is ultimately characterized by like, hey, take the broad road. Like, that's what identifies somebody as a false prophet. You know, the broad road is more appealing. So um, an example of this, um, 
uh, so my friend Becca, um, she said I could use her name and everything with this. So anyway, um, so uh, Becca actually got sucked in when she was in college. She actually got sucked into a group, um, and I hesitate to call it a church. Like I would probably call it by another c word, um, but. Um, so she was really sucked into a group like this uh, when she was in college. And um, so to make a long story short, um, that, group, that group had a very low view of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So biblically, what we would say is that, um, according to scripture, um, Jesus died in our place for our sins. So like we go our way and not God's way. It's just like we deserve to take the hit for that. Jesus took the hit for us. And because Jesus lived a sinless life, he had perfect righteousness, perfect rightness in, before God. And because Jesus loves us so much, like, he took the hit for us. And, like, that perfect rightness, that righteousness, that got transferred onto us. So when God looks at us, like, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't see the righteousness, our righteousness. So um, that's, that's a high view and a robust view of like what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's not just some dude who died. It's not a broke homeless guy who got murdered. So, um, but the group that Becca got sucked into, um, they had a really low view of that. So like, they didn't think that like what Jesus did on the cross really like, um, that's not what determined how God looked at you. Like the thing that determined how God looked at you was, man, you just basically need to be perfect. You just need to, like, do better and try harder and just, like, man, you just need to shape up and, like, that's just, that's just the deal, you know? And, um, yeah, so, like, yeah. And what Becca said was, like, everybody in that group, including the leaders, like, seemed really spiritual on the outside and mature, um, it's only when you got to know them deeper, you could see that the fruit of their life and ministry was like, man, if you questioned them or anything like that, man, it's just like, you know, there was just shunning. There was like, it was just a deeply toxic kind of like culture and just like, just spiritually oppressive. And like, but it wasn't until like you got more deep into it that it's like, you noticed that, like that was the fruit of people. Like people were being drawn away from the gospel because of that. So and I remember, like, Becca saying, like, um, after, like, God just got her out of that, um, was that, like, man, those people, they were so nice and friendly, like, when you, like, when you met them. It's, like, but, like, the thing is, like, why were they so nice? It's because they were just operating on a fe- complete fear, you know? It's just, you know, um, yeah, it wasn't until you just got to know them more that it was just, like, huh, that's weird, huh, that's weird, you know, but... And Jesus says, by, your, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So when it comes to spiritual discernment, um, discernment's really important because I think that's part of what Jesus is talking about. Like, by their fruit, you will recognize them. He says that twice there. Um, but um, let me tell you, like, as a leader, teaching discernment and encouraging people towards discernment, like the people that you're leading, um, that's really, really hard. Um, just, you know, Brandon and I have talked about this before, you know, but like, I mean, we've talked about this a lot where like, how do you do that? Because, I mean, I've been in vocational ministry for like, I think 15-ish years. And like, that's one of the things that's like the hardest thing because the goal in teaching people discernment is that 
um, they won't be gullible, okay? While concurrently teaching them to not be insufferable jerks, <laughs> okay? Like, that's really hard. I mean, that is a tightrope, okay? Because um, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you know, people who think, like, there's no such thing as a little deal. There's only, like, big deals with everything. I mean, some of you grew up in these kind of cultures. Some of you people, some of you, like, didn't grow up in this culture at all, these kind of cultures at all. But, like, people who just, like, think everything is a big deal and just, like, man, they're just suspicious and uncharitable about everyone. They think everybody's a false prophet. And, like, suddenly, like, you're, like, next thing you know, you're, like, my great aunt who sends you emails about Israel and, like, everything is just crazy and just, like, oh, gosh, I want to spam you. I really do. It's just, like, no church is good enough for you to be involved in or attend because everything is a big deal. Um, yeah. But, like, here at River City, like, um, that's one of the reasons why we preach from the Bible because if uh, Brandon and I or whoever else, like, just got up here and just, like, talked about my opinions and everything, it's, like... Um, I think we'd be like uh, creating a, accidentally creating a culture where like people are just like, wow, what does Aaron think or what does Brandon think? Or it's like, well, we want you to like be glued to like what Scripture says. You know, that's why we do that. You know, we study through passages of the of the Bible in small groups because we really want to create a culture like over the long haul of just like, man, people like just really go to Scripture like like as a group, we can study scripture together and just like, oh, we don't come up with wacky conclusions about things. And it's like over the long haul, it's like, oh yeah, it's just like you just kind of learn how to like approach scripture on your own over time. I mean, that's why we do that. So we encourage you to like read and study and trust the Bible for yourself and just really like, yeah, and just over the long haul, it's like creating a culture towards that. That's why I like, that's one of the reasons why we do that. And one of the reasons why we make a big deal about the gospel, there's a lot of reasons why we make a big deal out of the gospel. Um, but um, one of the reasons is that not only does it give us the motivation for the humility that we need, so we'd be avoiding being the insufferable jerks, <laughs> the aforementioned insufferable jerks. It's like it, the gospel gives us a framework for that kind of humility. But um, we also make a big deal out of it because the gospel gives us a framework for um, understanding how big of a deal an issue actually is because the closer that an issue like everything connects to the gospel but the closer that an issue like is deeply entrenched with the gospel that's how we can tell like if something's a really big deal you know so in the sermon on the mount on the mount Jesus seems to think that being discerning about false prophets is important because it helps to helps us bypass the scenario that he they starts describing in verse 21. So verse 21. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the way of religion is do better, try harder, do the will of God, white knuckle it and just like buckle down and just like, you know, that's the way of religion. Um, now we'll see in we see in this passage in verse twenty one it's like there is a profession of faith right there it's like Lord Lord you know but like um, but Jesus talks about like obedience is connected with that profession of faith now that's important to know because like the way of the gospel is that God gives us a new heart and out of that overflow of that new heart 
like that's where obedience comes from because like the important thing is that who we really are that eventually spills out into like what we are who we are in our life like who you are on the inside like that's eventually going to show up when god gives you that new heart like that just happens eventually so it's not talking about white knuckling it but it does connect with like you know like who you are that's eventually going to come out that's the narrow road of the gospel Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's a hard thing to say. So let's just first point out that like Jesus does not say, I knew you at one time, but now I don't know you. I knew you at one time, but you strayed from me. But rather, like, I never knew you. So more specifically, uh, who are these people that Jesus is talking about in verses 22 and 23? So there's three things that we can, we can know about them. One, uh, these are people that have right doctrine. These are people who have right doctrine. The word Lord here is the, the theologically correct Greek word. It really is. We're going into the Greek. The word Lord is the theologically correct Greek word used for spe- the specific name used for God in the Old Testament. These people have right doctrine. This is like an orthodox profession of faith. They don't talk, they aren't saying, they aren't calling him the man upstairs. Like he's just like, he's just like, this is, these people have right doctrine when they call him Lord. So they have right doctrine. Second of all, like they're emotionally involved. So when they say Lord, Lord, in the Jewish culture, when you repeated a word like that, um, that was a cultural way. Every culture has their own cultural way of expressing communication and everything. In the Jewish culture, that was a culturally appropriate way to express deep emotion. So Second, uh, second Kings 19, uh, when uh, the king's son dies, like he, says, he says, Absalom, Absalom, my, my son, my son. It's like expressing deep emotion. So when Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying for our sins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's expressing deep emotion. Lord, Lord. So these aren't people who are emotionally distant intellectual spectators when it comes to spiritual matters. Like, they're emotionally involved. So they have right doctrine. They're emotionally involved. And third, these people are involved in ministry. They're involved in ministry. Do we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? These are people who are involved in ministry. Now, some of you might say, like, you would call that being involved in ministry? Like, yeah, I would. Like, if you do that kind of stuff, like at your small group on Tuesday, it's like we're going to say, you're involved in ministry, okay? So these people are involved in ministry. They have right doctrine, they're emotionally into it, and they're involved in ministry. Like, and that's all good stuff, all three of those things are good stuff. But if that stuff doesn't make you right with God, then what does? <laughs> he says he never knew them. So I've preached, uh, I've preached on this passage before, and when I've preached on it before, um, they, you know, at this point in the sermon, like, what I think what I've said before is, like, I hone in on, um, in verse 23, where it's, Jesus says, I never knew you, that word knew right there. So it's like, oh, it's about, like, knowing Jesus. Do you know him personally? 
which functionally is what Mike was talking about, like, you know, during his story. It's like, do you know him personally? He's not, God's just not an idea or this distant man upstairs. It's like, do you know him personally? You know? You know, and like, I would, I would agree with that, but um, I think the tweak that I would, that I would make to that, um, that statement is that um, if we let this passage just stand on its own two feet and just, and just uh, speak for itself and let Jesus speak for himself. Like, it's important to notice that um, Jesus doesn't put any emphasis on this particu- in this particular passage. He doesn't put any emphasis on us knowing him. Instead, the emphasis on, in this passage is on him, him knowing us. And that's what seems to matter supremely. So J.I. Packer, uh, he has this uh, famous book that like tons of people own, but hardly anyone reads. It's called Knowing God. Um, I would be one of those people. <laughs> I've only read parts of it. So like he has this really, really great um, couple paragraphs in there. So this is what he says about that subject. He says, What matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact that underlies it, that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. This is unspeakable comfort. The sort of comfort that energizes in knowing God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself. There's something even better than knowing God. It's being known by him. And because he he knows us first, like, that's what makes knowing Jesus, like, that much sweeter and more meaningful. And some of you need to be known by God. So he's calling you to put up the white flag of your life and surrender to him and enter through the narrow gate. Like some of you, your faith is like a pair of wobbly sea legs. (laughs) Um, But even that small amount of faith is sufficient to be known by him. Like you're not saved by the quality of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith, which is Jesus. Yeah, so let's pray. So Jesus, um, we're thankful that um, you want to know us. We're thankful that like um, the way you described it was like a narrow gate and, excuse me, a narrow road and a broad road. Yeah, we're thankful for you, Jesus. Yeah, we pray that, um, yeah, that like collectively, uh, just as a church, but like individually, God, that like, the way that we respond to you in communion, that we'll, we'll just choose that narrow road because like, we want to be known by you. Yeah. 
yeah, thanks for being the object of our faith. And I pray you'll just really empower us to be like, just to believe and to know you. Amen.